Matthew chapter 23, verses 29 through 33 is where we'll begin. Verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we wouldn't have taken part with them in shedding the prophets' blood. You therefore testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's sins. Snakes, brood of vipers, how can you escape being condemned to hell? May Yahweh bless his word to our hearts today. Harsh words, very harsh words. It fascinates me that Yeshua's harsh words are directed to some people that a lot of people might consider in that day men who were most devoted to Yahweh, at least on the outside. It looked like they were. But as we've seen all through the chapter, they were not. And today we come to the final woe. There's eight woes, what theologians call the eight woes of Matthew chapter 23. And we're at the eighth one today. I'd like to just recap them briefly, very briefly, and then we'll jump right into our text tonight. Number one, the first one was woe to them for they lock up the kingdom from people. They should be teaching the truth and enlightening people from their position in the chair, the chair of Moses. But they aren't. Number two, woe to them for stealing from the widows by deceit and then praying a long prayer blessing over them just for a show. Number three, woe to them for making hellish converts to their twisted religion of Judaism. Number four, woe to them for trying to circumvent the law with their made-up oath-taking system. Number five, woe to them for neglecting the weighty matters of the law while they focused on the small matters of the law. Number six, woe to them for cleaning the outside of the cup but not the inside of the cup. Number seven, woe to them for they are full of deadness even though they appear like a lime-plastered tomb of white on the outside. Inside, they're like the tombs, dead men's bones. Now tonight, the eighth woe and the final woe, although there'll be more rebuke, Yeshua says, woe to them for their lying and their false piety concerning their relationship to the prophets that Yahweh sends. What do I mean by that? Well, we read it. We read it specifically in verses 29 through 30 moments ago. Let's look at it again. Matthew 23, verse 29, by itself. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, pretenders. That's what hypocrites means, pretenders. You build the tombs of the prophets and you decorate the monuments of the righteous. So first, we read here that they're building and decorating tombs and monuments of prophets. Now, I think that build the tombs of the prophets and then decorate the monuments of the righteous are equivalent statements. I think it's parallelism. One point said two different ways by Yeshua. Build and decorate is synonymous, and prophets and righteous are synonymous. Prophets of Yahweh were always righteous men. When you read prophets of Yahweh in the Old Testament, specifically and also in the, the Gospels like John the Baptizer, they were always righteous men. That's why Yahweh had them as his prophet, his chosen prophet or prophets. They live righteous lives. And sometimes they're referred to Yeshua 
as the righteous instead of the prophets. You can look at Matthew 10.41 and also Matthew 13.17 where prophets and the righteous are used synonymously, talking about the same people. But what does it mean to build and decorate a monument or a tomb of a prophet? Well, we find in Scripture, in the Old Testament, as well as in history, that tombs of holy men were often venerated. Their grave was a monument that memorialized the greatness and the devotion that the holy man had towards the Most High. Men like Abraham, Israel, Joseph. You can read about these men in Genesis chapters 25 and also 50. They all had their place of burial marked clearly by their living descendants when they were buried. And the reason their place of burial was marked clearly was because they were great saints of the faith of Yahweh, the patriarchs, and also the Israelites. Pillars of faith in Yahweh. This is probably what the Apostle Peter is speaking of in Acts 2.29 when he speaks of the patriarch David and he says he is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Peter is pointing out not only that David is dead but he's pointing out that everyone knows, everyone listening to his message knows where David is buried. His tomb is with us to this day. You all know that. The Israelite historian Flavius Josephus talks about there being an expensive white marble monument that was placed at the entrance of David's tomb in the first century. He also speaks of how he had visited the tombs, Josephus visited the tombs of the patriarchs in the land of Hebron, and they were of excellent marble and built in the most elegant manner as memorials for these holy men. There's also some mention of this practice in the book of 1 Maccabees, chapter 13, verses 27 through 30. Now, in Matthew 23, verse 29, Yeshua says that the scribes and the Pharisees build or decorate the tombs of the dead prophets. And Yeshua doesn't so much rebuke that practice as he rebukes their hypocrisy in what they're doing. Here again, the scribes and Pharisees are doing one thing, but they're acting contrary to what they're doing. They're paying lip service or outward show, but the reality is there's no inward change of heart. Very similar to cleaning the outside of the cup, but not the inside of the cup. Verse 30 in Matthew 23 adds how they were contrary or hypocritical in this. I want to read verses 29 and 30 together now. Verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You build the tombs of the prophets... Decorate the monuments of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, and if you picture them saying it in pride and piety and the showiness, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we wouldn't have taken part with them in shedding the prophet's blood. We're good men. We're righteous men. We wouldn't have killed the prophets. So they're decorating these tombs of the prophets and then they're piously proclaiming, well, if we lived in the past, in the days of our fathers, fathers means ancestors. We would have never killed the holy prophets like they did. So here they're recognizing that the prophets of Yahweh have been killed in times past by their fathers, by their physical ancestors. But their claim is, is that they are different than their fathers. 
We wouldn't have killed the prophets if we would have lived back then. They claim to love the prophets and what they have to show or to prove that, quote-unquote, is these monuments that they're building at the tombs of the prophets. Master, Yeshua, look at the monument. This proves that we love the prophets. That proves it. Once again, outward show. Claiming one thing with their lips. Their heart was far from Yahweh and Yeshua. Now, at this point, I want you to remember the last message, the last sermon, where I said that as we get further to the end of Matthew chapter 23, it will become very easy to prove that the scribes and the Pharisees are are physical Israelites. I point this out because some writings that I've read recently in my studies, some tend to believe that they were not. And I disagree with that. I believe that the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23 that Yeshua addresses are all physical Israelites. And I believe... Matthew 23, verse 30, proves this beyond a shadow of a doubt. Now, let me now explain this further and in more detail. In verse 30, Yeshua says that they say, had we lived in the days of our fathers, if you believe in writing in your Bible, underline that, circle it, do something to it, highlight it. Had we lived in the days of our fathers, we wouldn't have taken part with them in shedding the prophet's blood. This shows that the ancestors of the Pharisees were the ones who killed the prophets in times past. Killed what prophets? Well, obviously they killed the righteous Israelite prophets. If we go back to the Hebrew Scriptures and we see who is responsible for killing the prophets, then we will know who the Pharisees' ancestors or fathers are. So, who was responsible for killing the prophets in the Old Testament? I can say to you, I'm going to prove this, I can say to you with absolute certainty that the people responsible for killing the prophets were rebellious, physical Israelites. physically chosen men inside the nation of Israel who rebelled against Yahweh. They were responsible for killing the prophets and it was from this unrighteous Israelite lineage that the Pharisees descended, physically. The sins of the fathers continue to be passed down from generation to generation. Now, I want to show you this from the Scriptures. It's one thing for me to make a claim. I made a very bold claim. One thing for me to make a claim, but it's an entirely different thing to prove that claim. So we're going to prove that in the rest of this lesson and also some next week. I want to turn to 1 Kings. Let's look at the book of 1 Kings, chapter 19. 1 Kings, chapter 19. We'll begin at verse 1 through verse 18. Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Now... In 1 Kings 18, the chapter right before this, we have there the contest on Mount Carmel between Elijah, the prophet of Yahweh, and the 450 prophets of Baal, as well as the 400 prophets of Asherah. 
And Elijah won by the power of Yahweh. He won that contest, so to speak. And then after he won, Elijah took the prophets of Baal, all 450 of them, down to the uh, brook of Kidron, and he killed them, all 450 of them, with a sword. Put that verse on the refrigerator, right? A lot of people wouldn't want to do that. But that's biblically inspired. That's what Elijah the prophet did to the prophets of Baal. We are not specifically told if Elijah slaughtered the prophets of Asherah. I suspect that he did. Uh, 1 Kings 18.19 would lead me in that direction. Now, a side note on verse 1 of 1 Kings 19.1. It mentions Ahab and Jezebel. This is a side note. This is important. Ahab was an Israelite king of the northern house of Israel. 1 Kings 16.29 proves that. Ahab's wife, Jezebel, however, was not an Israelite woman. She was from a forbidden lineage. She was a Sidonian. 1 Kings 16.31. And she enticed Ahab, her husband, to worship Baal. The Sidonians were descendants of Canaan's firstborn son, Sidon, Genesis chapter 10, verse 15. And the Sidonians were included in the nations that Yahweh had told the Israelites not to intermarry with. 1 Kings 11, 1 through 2, and Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 6. These women, Yahweh warned, would turn you away from Yahweh, and that is exactly what Jezebel did to Ahab, and not only to Ahab, but these some of these same Sidonian women, among others, seduced King Solomon to turn away from Yahweh as well. Verse 2, 1 Kings 19, verse 2. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, May the gods punish me and do so severely if I don't make your life like the life of one of them. And what she means is, one of those dead prophets of Baal that you just got through killing, if I don't kill you like you just killed them, may the gods, notice she's a pagan queen, may the gods punish me by this time tomorrow. Verse 3, Then Elijah became afraid and immediately ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba that belonged to Judah, he left his servant there, but he went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He sat down under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. He said, I have had enough. Now, even prophets of Yahweh can become afraid. It doesn't mean that they stop believing. It doesn't mean that they're bad people. It doesn't even necessarily mean that they're weak people. You know what it means? It just means that they're human. And they struggle, just like the rest of us. We would think Elijah is a strong and mighty man, and he was. But even Elijah can get pushed to the point to where he's frustrated, and he's discouraged, and he's afraid, and he leaves. But that's okay. Yahweh's going to strengthen him. He says in verse 4, at the end of it, he says, Yahweh, take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. So he's tired. He says, just take me out of here, Yahweh. Verse 5, Then he laid down and slept under the broom tree. Suddenly an angel touched him. The angel told him, get up and eat. Then he looked, and there at his head was a loaf of bread baked over hot stones and a jug of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. 
the angel brought him some sustenance to encourage him, part of encouraging him. I think sometimes we think that encouragement means somebody's got to do some kind of spiritual something. But what did the angel do? He brought him some food. Sometimes I think when when we're discouraged or when we're downtrodden, I think we just sometimes need just some physical rest and some physical sustenance. We need to take care of our of our physical bodies. Not knocking the spiritual. We need spiritual strength and encouragement too. But sometimes we can run ourselves so ragged that we forget to take care of our bodies and nourish our bodies. And that's what Elijah part of what Elijah had done. Praise Yahweh for the angels that take care of, of Yahweh's children. I believe in them. I believe in angelic beings. This is talking about an angelic being here that came. Sometimes in the Bible, angels just means messengers. John the Baptist is called an angel. Okay, But in this case, and in many other cases, it's angelic beings like Gabriel and Michael, uh, creatures like this. Verse uh, 7, Then the angel of Yahweh returned for a second time and touched him, And he said, get up and eat or the journey will be too much for you. So he got up, ate and drank. Then on the strength from that food, he walked 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of the mighty one. Must have been some meal. (laughs) Give him strength for 40 days and 40 nights. Verse 9. He entered a cave there and spent the night. Then the word of Yahweh came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? The word of Yahweh comes. What are you doing? Listen very carefully. Follow along with me in your Bible. Verse 10. He replied, Elijah replies to Yahweh, I have been very zealous for Yahweh the Mighty One of Hosts. Catch this now. But the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are looking for me to take my life. Who does Elijah say killed the prophets? It was the Israelites. Elijah's afraid not of righteous men of Israel. We're going to see that there were still some of those. But he was afraid of the rebellious Israelites. Israelites who, like King Ahab, did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. I want you to notice also that according to verse 10, it is possible for Israelites to abandon Yahweh's covenant. He says, one of the things these rebellious Israelites had done was, they have abandoned your covenant. This is a key verse to understand who it was throughout the Old Testament that killed the prophets of Yahweh. We're going to tie this back in to Matthew 23. The fathers or the ancestors of the Pharisees were rebellious Israelites. Verse 11, 1 Kings 19, verse 11. Then he said, this is the word of Yahweh, Yahweh talking to Elijah, go out and stand on the mountain in Yahweh's presence. At that moment, Yahweh passed by. A great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountains and was shattering cliffs before Yahweh, but Yahweh was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but Yahweh was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but Yahweh was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. Sometimes I think we we look for the big things. We pray and nothing big happens and we think, Oh, Yahweh, where are you at? But Yahweh's not always in those big things. Earthquakes, fire, great wind. Here he was just in the soft whisper. Yahweh speaks to us from day to day in small ways that we overlook because we're waiting for something majestic, right? Not saying that Yahweh can't use the majestic, but sometimes he chooses not to. 
When Elijah heard it, the whisper it's talking about, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Verse 14, key verse, parallel with verse 10. Look at it. Elijah says, I have been very zealous for Yahweh, the mighty one of hosts. He replied, But the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they're looking for me to take my life. So again, Elijah repeats what he stated in verse 10. The Israelites had abandoned Yahweh's covenant and killed Yahweh's prophets with the sword. And Elijah was the only prophet left at that time, at least the only acting prophet. It looks like in 1 Kings 18, 3 through 4 and verse 13, that there were some other prophets that a righteous man hid. But they weren't executing the office. They weren't out in the open. Elijah was the only one out in the open executing the office of a prophet. But the rebellious Israelites had killed the prophets and they were out to get Elijah. They'd abandoned Yahweh's covenant. They'd torn down the altars, the righteous altars, and they were out to get the prophet Elijah. And Elijah was worried. Now, some of this came about because of Jezebel's, the Sidonian woman, because of Jezebel's idolatrous influence on Ahab. Ahab brought a woman into his life that he should have never brought into his life. And her influence caused some of this to take place. But I want you, if you read 1 Kings, especially 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 17 through 26, we never see where Yahweh blamed Jezebel. And you know why? Because Yahweh never gave His law to Jezebel. He never blamed her. She did die. Yahweh did destroy her. But Yahweh blamed Ahab. The king. Why? Because he had abandoned the covenant of Yahweh. And Yahweh blamed the rebellious Israelites that abandoned the covenant of Yahweh and that were killing the prophets. It was the Israelites' fault for bringing Jezebel into the camp. They were the ones rebelling against Yahweh by following her orders. 1 Kings 19, verse 15. Then Yahweh said to him, Go and return by the way you came to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you are to anoint Hazael as king over Aram. You are to anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, as prophet in your place. Then Jehu will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Jehu. Verse 18, beautiful, gives me strength. But I will leave 7,000 in Israel. I will leave 7,000 in Israel, every knee that has not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. While there were many rebellious Israelites, there were still a few righteous, about 7,000 physical Israelite men that had not abandoned Yahweh's covenant, that had not torn down the altars, and that had not been in on killing the prophets. So this is going to give Elijah strength. There's 7,000 Yahweh has reserved. Yahweh preserved 7,000 who had not been in on killing the prophets. This was the righteous remnant but there were few in comparison to the many wicked Israelites who had abandoned the covenant. Now, I believe 
that this story is a picture of so many New Testament references to the many and to the few. You can be one of the many in Israel who abandoned the covenant, or you can be one of the few in Israel who hold fast to the covenant. Romans 11, 1 through 6. I'm not going to comment a whole lot on it, but I do want to turn to it and read it because the Apostle Paul actually quotes from 1 Kings 19 and Romans 11, 1 through 6. And he says in Romans 11, verse 1, Paul says, I ask then, has the Mighty One rejected His people? Absolutely not. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. The Mighty One has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Or do you not know, listen carefully, what the Scripture says in the Elijah section? How He pleads with the Mighty One against Israel. Verse 3, Yahweh, they have killed your prophets, torn down your altars, and I am the only one left, and they're trying to take my life. Paul quotes in Romans 11, verse 3, Paul quotes 1 Kings 19, verse 10, and verse 14. Verse 4, Romans 11, But what was the Mighty One's reply to him? I have left 7,000 men for myself who have not bowed down to Baal. In the same way, then, there is also at the present time, at the time Paul was writing the letter to the Roman assembly, there is at the present time a remnant, a remnant of who? A remnant of Israel, chosen by grace. Now, if it be by grace, then it is not by works, otherwise grace ceases to be grace. I'd like to get more into that, but I just want you to recognize Paul is quoting 1 Kings 19 in that text. Now, the key to the entire passage in 1 Kings 19 is that it was Israelites who were guilty of killing their own prophets. Remember again in Matthew 23.30, Yeshua says to the Pharisees, and you say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the prophets' blood. The Pharisees were making a reference to their Israelite fathers back at the time of Elijah. Their rebellious Israelite forefathers who abandoned Yahweh's covenant, killed Yahweh's prophets, the prophets who preached to expose their evil deeds. Let's look at another passage in the Old Testament that corroborates this. Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. Let's turn to that one. This will be our last text that we go to in this lesson. And I'm not going to comment as much as we read through these verses. They're pretty much self-explanatory. Um, but I want you to follow along and listen carefully to the entire context, and I think you'll see very clearly. Nehemiah and the leaders there are recounting some of the history of the Israelite people, of which they were a part. Nehemiah 9, verse 1. On the 24th day of this month, the Israelites, there, there it is, assembled. They were fasting, wearing sackcloth, and had put dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the guilt of their fathers. Listen to these key terms. Confess sins, guilt of their fathers. These are key terms. Don't overlook these terms. Recognize them when you read them. There's going to be a lot of them in this chapter. This is a beautiful chapter. I know I say this a lot, but I've been reading this chapter every morning for the past couple of weeks. It has become 
one of my favorite texts in the Bible. I know I say that a lot, but it's one of my favorite texts. And I think you'll see why when we read it. Look at verse 3. While they stood in their places, they read from the book of the law of Yahweh, their mighty one, for one-fourth of the day, and spent another fourth of the day in confession and worship of Yahweh, their mighty one. Confession of what? Confession of sins. One of the sins that they were confessing was they had brought in foreign women that they were commanded not to intermarry with. That was one of the sins that they were confessing. There's others. We'll talk about those in a second. But that's one according to verses 1 through 3. Verse 4. Yeshua, Benai, Kadmiel, Shabanya, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani <laughs> stood on the raised platform built for the Levites and they cried out loudly to Yahweh their Mighty One. And then the Levites, and it gives all of their names, said, Stand up, praise Yahweh, your Mighty One, from everlasting to everlasting. Praise your glorious name and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. Talking about the name of Yahweh. Verse 6, You alone are Yahweh. You created the heavens, the highest heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host worships you. You are Yahweh, the mighty one who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and changed his name to Abraham. You found his heart faithful in your sight and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites to give that land, to give it, to Abraham's descendants. You have kept your promise, for you are righteous. You saw the oppression of our ancestors. This prayer in Nehemiah 9 saying, Who's he talking about when he says our ancestors? In Egypt, physical Israelites. And you heard their cry at the Red Sea. What do you mean their cry at the Red Sea? You know the story in Exodus 14. Why were they crying out to Yahweh? Because the Egyptians were fast behind them. Pharaoh had changed his mind. He had let them go, but he had changed his mind. And they were heading to get the Israelites. But what happened? Well, we know what happened, but let's read it in Nehemiah 9. You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh. All his officials and all the people of his land, for you knew how arrogantly they treated our ancestors. You made a name for yourself that endures to this day. You divided the sea before them, Israel, and they crossed through it on dry ground. You hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into churning waters. Their pursuers were the Egyptians. The Israelites crossed through on dry ground. You led them with a pillar of cloud by day, with a pillar of fire by night, to illuminate the way they should go. That was a blessing. That was a blessing. The, the cloud by day and the fire by night was a blessing to the people of Israel to show them the path to take. Verse 13, You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke to them from heaven. You gave them impartial ordinances, reliable instructions, good statutes, and commands. You revealed your holy Sabbath to them and gave them commands, statutes, and instructions through your servant Moses. You provided bread from heaven for their hunger. You brought them water from the rock for their thirst. Key terms. 
Don't stop missing these terms as we read this chapter. It's very important. You told them to go in and possess the land. You had sworn to give them. The whole chapter is about the Israelites. Verse 16. But our ancestors acted arrogantly. They became stiff-necked and did not listen to your command. They refused to listen and did not remember your wonders you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But, but you are a forgiving mighty one, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in faithful love. And you did not abandon them. Even after they had cast the image of a calf for themselves and said, this is your mighty one who brought you out of Egypt. And they had committed terrible blasphemy. You did not abandon them in the wilderness because of your great compassion. During the day, the pillar of cloud never turned away from them, guiding them on their journey. And during the night, the pillar of fire illuminated the way they should go. You sent your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. You provided for them in the wilderness for 40 years, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. You gave them kingdoms and peoples and assigned them to be a boundary. They took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and of the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their descendants like the stars of heaven and brought them to the land. You told their ancestors to go in and take possession of it. So their descendants went in and possessed the land. You subdued the Canaanites who inhabited the land before them and handed their kings and the surrounding peoples over to them to do as they pleased with them. They captured fortified cities and fertile land and took possession of the well-supplied houses, cisterns cut out of the rock, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. They ate, were filled, became prosperous, and delighted in your great goodness. But... But they were disobedient and they rebelled against you. They flung your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed terrible blasphemies. Verse 26 is a key verse. In this entire section, it is blatantly obvious that Yahweh's people are the Israelite people. It's blatant, obvious. Physical ancestors, physical descendants, all coming from Abraham. He started with Abraham even before the name change. Abraham through Isaac, through Jacob Israel. Yahweh was so compassionate upon them, even when they rebelled. He continued to be slow to anger and rich in faithful love and merciful and forgiving 
He kept taking them back. He even told a prophet one time by the name of Hosea to do something very obscene, to give a picture of what Yahweh was doing with the people of Israel. How He kept taking them back. But verse 26 in Nehemiah 9 says that after all His goodness, the Israelites still flung Yahweh's law behind their backs and killed the prophets of Yahweh with a sword. Why did they kill Yahweh's prophets? Remember, the prophets of Yahweh are always righteous men. Why did they kill Yahweh's prophets? Well, it's because the prophets of Yahweh came with a message of warning. Repent. You're in rebellion. Yahweh's been so good. Look at what He's done. Look at how He gave you the law. He came down on the mountain. He drowned Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. He did all of these things for you and you're going to fling fling His law behind your backs? And they took the sword from the sheath and they slaughtered the prophet of Yahweh. They committed terrible blasphemies, verse 26 said, because they did not care about Yahweh. Rebellious Israelites slaughtered holy prophets. Nehemiah 9 is so powerful. I want to read the rest of it, picking it back up in verse 27. Nehemiah 9, verse 27. So, you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. In their time of distress, they cried out to you and you heard from heaven. How many times have we had those times of distress and we cry out to Yahweh when we need Him and we're in distress? And that should not be the only time that we cry out to Him. It shouldn't be. But a lot of times He disciplines us and He whoops us because we're His children. And when our time of discipline comes, we realize the situation and we realize our rebellion and we do what? We repent. We cry out to Yahweh. And that's what they did. And look what verse 27 says at the end that Yahweh did. He heard from heaven and in in His abundant compassion He gave them deliverers. Literally, He gave them saviors. There's many saviors that Yahweh gave to Israel from the nation of Israel to rescue them from the power of their enemies, verse 27 says. Verse 28. But as soon as they had relief, they again did what was evil in your sight. I'm afraid, brothers and sisters, that we act the exact same way that our ancestors acted. We get in distress. We cry out to Yahweh in times of distress because we know that we've sinned. We repent. Yahweh's compassionate. He takes us back. He brings us back into His arms. And as soon as we get some relief, we go back and do the same thing again. So, verse 28, you abandoned them to the power of their enemies who dominated them. When they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven and rescued them many times in your compassion. (laughs) Yahweh is compassionate. He's merciful to His children. Verse 29, you warned them to turn back to your law. Notice the key terms. Turn back to your law. Back to your law means that they were once with His law. The early part of the chapter says Yahweh gave it to them on Mount Sinai. They had flung it behind their backs. The prophets came and warned them, turn back to Yahweh's law. Be reconciled. Come back. But they acted arrogantly and would not obey your commands. They sinned. Sinned is another key term, transgression of the law. They sinned against your ordinances, which a person will live by if he does them. They stubbornly resisted, stiffened their necks, and would not obey. 
Verse 30, you were patient with them for many years. And your spirit warned them through your prophets, but they would not listen. Therefore you handed them over to the surrounding peoples. Verse 31, however in your abundant compassion you did not destroy them or abandon them. For you are a gracious and a compassionate mighty one. So now, verse 32, our mighty one, the great mighty and awe-inspiring mighty one who keeps his gracious covenant, do not view lightly all of the hardships that have afflicted us, our kings and leaders, our priests and prophets, our ancestors and all your people from the days of the Assyrian kings until today. You are righteous concerning all that has come on us because you have acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. Well, they asked me one time, why do you pray? Sometimes when you pray, you pray, Yahweh, I love you, you are good, and I am not. I pray those types of, of prayers because of verses like these. I see the example in the Bible to pray like verse 33. Yahweh, you have been faithful. Listen, when we're faithless, when we turn our back on Yahweh, He still remains faithful to His end of the covenant. He doesn't change his mind. He swears oaths and doesn't break oaths. But Nehemiah says, we have acted wickedly. Verse 34, Our kings, leaders, priests, and ancestors did not obey your law or listen to your commands and warnings you gave them. When they were in their kingdom with your abundant goodness that you gave them and in the spacious and fertile land you set before them, they would not serve you or turn from their wicked ways. Here we are today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so that they can enjoy its fruit and its goodness. Here we are, slaves in it. Its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have set over us because of our sins. Yahweh will use other nations as a rod against His people in an attempt to turn them back to His law. Some of them, by Yahweh's grace, do turn back. But many of them do not. And Yahweh doesn't pull you kicking and screaming and drag you to make you serve Him. You serve Him because you have a desire in your heart to do so. But I don't want to come. Well, you're going to come anyhow. I'm going to force you to come. No, that's not how Yahweh operates. He sends the prophets gives the warning. Some turn. Many do not. They rule over our bodies and our livestock as they please. We are in great distress. What a text. What a text. What a text. What a text. Read it. Soak it in. Chew on it. Ruminate on it like the goat. You know, with the four stomachs. I mean, get into this text because it is powerful. Nehemiah chapter 9 is beautiful. It's powerful. And as I was studying this past week and I read through this text in Nehemiah early one morning, I sat at my kitchen table in my house and I began to weep. And I began to weep because of the mercies of Yahweh. And I wept because I felt, I could feel the text that morning as I read it. Some mornings I read it and I still study and I'm excited about the Word, but I don't feel it. But there was one morning this past week when I read it and I could could literally, I could feel the presence of Yahweh from the text. I mean, it was like it was soaking in to my spirit. Yahweh kept taking the Israelites back 
And as soon as they would get relief and they would prosper, they would fall right back into sin. And they even went so far as to kill their own prophets. Nehemiah 9 verse 26. Highlight that one if you do that sort of thing. Or if you take notes, write it down in your notes. Nehemiah 9 26 goes along with 1 Kings 19, 10, and 14. They killed their own prophets with a sword. Now, I wept. Let me tell you why I wept. I wept when I read this because I saw Matthew in this text. I wept because I have been rebellious too to Yahweh. I wept because I can feel Yahweh's mercy on my life. I mean, I can really feel that it's there. I know it's there. I know that I know that it's there, brothers and sisters. I feel it in my mind and in my heart and deep down in my soul that Yahweh has me in His hand. But yeah, I rebel against Him. I have done so many times. And Yahweh disciplines me and I get relief and I come back to Him. And then many times, once that relief comes, I turn back over here again just like the Israelites did in Nehemiah 9. Then I get disciplined and I repent. And because we read it many times, Yahweh's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's rich in faithful love. He says, come back, my son. He comes back and he gives me a hug. He says, Matthew, I love you. Yahweh's mercy is always there. His mercy endureth forever. Listen to this next little word I'm going to put in here. If. If we confess and repent. That is a condition. Yahweh's mercy never runs out if, if we confess and repent. It's a never-ending supply. It's like you keep pulling from it and it doesn't get any lower. <laughs> if we confess and repent. But you cannot remain hard-hearted, stubborn, and stiff-necked. You cannot continue in wickedness. You cannot practice lawlessness and expect Yahweh's mercies to be there. You can't do it. They who practice such sins will not inherit the kingdom. Yahweh is the forgiver and praise Yahweh that He is. (laughs) But He is also the destroyer. I want to ask us all to turn to Him today and receive that forgiveness that He constantly gives. Now, I'm not even through with this section of Matthew chapter 23, but I think I'm going to stop here for now. I want you to meditate on these texts we've covered. Brothers and sisters, don't let the Sabbath or the teaching lesson be the only time that you open up your Bibles. I've given you a lot to chew on. I posted something on Facebook one day and I said chew on this and my sister texted me and she said I'm chewing Matthew I'm chewing (laughs) my flesh and blood sister Miranda whom I love and she made me laugh but I was thankful to hear that because I don't want you just to come here and open your Bible and listen to, to Matthew it's not about Matthew it's not about me it's about Yahweh it's about his son it's about the word and we've went through some passages, and I want you to go back and read them. We've, we've covered Matthew 23, 29, and 30. 
I read up to verse 33, but we'll cover that. We'll cover verses 31, 32, and 33 next week. Yahweh's will and we shall live. <laughs> but we covered Matthew 23, 29 through 30. We covered 1 Kings 19, 1 through 18. And we covered Nehemiah 9, pretty much the whole chapter of Nehemiah 9. And I want you to go back and read those. Meditate on those texts. Go back and study those texts. I believe that it is undeniable that the fathers the Pharisees spoke about, had we lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have killed the prophets. I believe their fathers who shed the blood of the prophets were their rebellious Israelite fathers. The Pharisees were descendants of these rebellious Israelites and if they did not repent, what happened to rebellious Israel of old that did not repent would happen to rebellious Israel of their time. They would receive judgment. And, and judgment is another key word. It's another key word. We'll pick this back up next week. Matthew 23, verses 31 through 33. Let's stand and close the word. Heavenly Father, I love you because you first loved me. Father, I have a new heart because you gave it to me. Help me, Yahweh. Prick my mind and my heart to every day come to you in confession and repentance. Prick the mind and the heart of all the people in here as we pray that prayer that your son taught his students to pray. And part of it is forgive us of our debts. As we forgive our debtors. Let us feel that as we pray it and not think highly of ourselves, but recognize that we are who we are because of your great mercy and your long-suffering and your tenderness and your kindness. You have acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. As Brother Nehemiah said, help us, Yahweh. Prick our hearts. Grant us faith. Let us receive the words from Scripture that we've covered this evening. I pray these things through your Son, Yeshua. Amen. Yahweh bless you.